A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheizt waren die Brüder in Amerika. So tausend Schabes at the guitar. Out of the 24 who were killed, were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut and who served. Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late. And it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And this is not just another episode. This is part two of our ongoing series called The Zionists, The Rabbis and the Zionists, rather. The Rabbis and the Zionists. And we're here with part two, which now it's really time to move on and get into um, what's called Proto-Zionism and later the and the lovers of Zion and the beginnings of the opposition from certain rabbinical authorities to to the rising nationalism, to the rising Zionist movement, and we'll try to explain that historical process. But before I go into that, I um, just want to point out something that a very active and great listener pointed out to me um, from part one. And I just wanted to, I felt like that, that might need a, clarif- a bit of a clarification. I mentioned about different... Um, individuals, small groups that had come to Eretz Yisrael over the Middle Ages, and the beginning of modern times, and there seemingly had not been opposition to that. And this this uh, wonderful listener, um, who's very knowledgeable also, um, sends me a whole list of, of um, Marmachimus, of sources, in Rishinim and Chazal, based off of Gemara and Ksubis, about how there seemingly is a is an issue, or there possibly can be an issue, uh, for someone to leave a center of Torah life. The Gemara specifically is talking about Bavel to come to Yisrael, which may not have centers of Torah at that time during the exile, and therefore it is forbidden to leave a place of Torah and even to come to Eretz Yisrael. So therefore, it possibly there may be opposition to leaving uh, places in Europe, even for an individual, even during medieval times, because at that time Eretz Yisrael was not a center of Tyra, and uh, and places in Europe were. That's what the, the protest was against what I said. So it could be true. I, I honestly don't know, because... As as I said in the beginning of this series, and I just wanted to emphasize it again, is that I'm not going to be examining um, throughout this series the the Torah, the theological underpinnings, and the disputes, um, and in to, how to interpret the s- sources in Chazal in the Rishonim. It's not my uh, expertise; far from it. And there are others who do have an expertise in that. And I'm only examining the historical record. And of course, if the Torah comes up in the historical record, then that is relevant as well. But as much as, as, as I can to stay, um, you know, to, to stay away from the areas that I definitely uh, am not an expert in. So possibly there is a halachic uh, dispute in regards to moving Torah Yisrael from a uh, Torah center. But... Um, but um, uh, it doesn't. It doesn't appear 
that there was active opposition from rabbis at the time um, based on this halacha. So that's also a clarification. And also for the future of this series, um, it's going to be focusing on the story, on the narrative, and much less on the, um, on the halachic ramifications, except where it comes up in the, uh, in the historical record. So we'll move on to the, the two groups of major aliyahs, major moving territories Yisrael in modern times. The first one we'll talk about is the aliyah of the Talmidi Baal Shem Tev. In 1777, two great rebbes of white Russia, Belarus, um, students of the Magad of Mizrich, so they're the third uh, generation of Hasidus from the Baal Shem Tev, Mendel of Itebsk, and Rebbe Kalisker, and they lead an aliyah from white Russia, from Belarus, and later on taking people from the Ukraine as well. And it ends up being close to 300 Hasidim that come and settle down in Tveria. They leave Eretz Yisrael, and they come settle in Tveria. There had been other individual Hasidim who had come earlier, of Nachman of Haradenka, and others, and even earlier, the Baal Shem Tov's brother-in-law, in the Baal Shem Tov's lifetime, Rav Gershon Kitavar, had come, but they came as individuals. This was an aliyah of close to 300, or maybe even more than 300. It was called the aliyah of the Talmidi Baal Shem Tov, and that's the first big grouping to settle the land, to settle the Yishuv, and they settled in Tveria and later in Sfas, but not in Yerushalayim because the Arab landlords in Yerushalayim did not allow Ashkenazim to settle in Yerushalayim because of the whole fiasco with the Aliyah of, the, of Rabbi Yehuda Chassid, which had, had taken place at the beginning of the century. And they had gotten into debt, and the Arab landlords decided that only Sephardic Jews are good at paying off their rent and their debts, so they're going to allow them to settle in Yerushalayim, but Ashkenazim, the Jews who come from Europe, they're pretty lousy, and we don't want them, so they did not allow them to settle in Yerushalayim. So they settle in Tveria and Sfas. This is followed shortly afterwards by a second aliyah from the opposite of the Hasidim, the aliyah of the Talmidei Hagro, the students of the Vilna Goyen. And Rabbi Yisrael of Shklov, the Pa'asa Shulchan, Rabbi Nachem Mendel of Shklov, and many others, they come also as several hundred, they come in several stages, in the beginning of the 1800s, 1808, 1810, 1816, and eventually there's a f- several hundred of them, and they also settle in Tveria and in Svaz, but Rabbi Nachem Mendel of Shklov decides that he's going to settle the Ashken, re- resettle Ashkenazim in Yerushalayim, and he he and later his followers, students, the next generation, it was a long protracted battle to allow it and to regulate it, the resettlement of Ashkenazi Jewry. First the Prushim, as the students of the Vilna Gain were called, they were the Kihilas HaPrushim, and, uh, and, uh, and later on the Hasidim came as well. The Lelavarebbe eventually moves to Yerushalayim, Karliner Hasidim settled in Yerushalayim, Sans Hasidim, others and uh, Rizhiner Hasidim, of course, become a very dominant um, Hasidim in Yerushalayim. They build, later on, the famous uh, Teferis Yisrael, or Nisan Bek Shul, alongside with the Churva Shul, which was the, the, belonged to the Prushim community, the non-Hasidim, the Talmidi Hagayin. And the settlement in Yerushalayim is renewed by these two groups. And that's a long process. starts up north in Tzvas and Tveria, and eventually moves to Yerushalayim as well. It takes them a while even to get a plot on the Harazesim Cemetery. Rabbi Nachem Mendel of Shklov is buried right next to the Arachayim HaKadosh. When I lead the groups on Harazesim to show them the old Kvarim, when you get to the Chelkas HaPrushim of, uh, on, the, on Harazesim, uh, then you, you, you're, you're going much later in time. It's only the late 1800s that the, that the Tzadikim that we go to Davin by and tell their stories are, and the, the earlier on tzaddikim of, of the Ashkenazi community are actually buried in the Sephardic section of the cemetery on Harazeser, Menachem Mendel of Shklov, even earlier Reb Gershon Kittiver, and others, because they didn't, the Ashkenazim did not even have their own plot on Harazeser. So the settlement comes in stages, and it takes time, and there's been a dispute amongst historians for many, many years now, and spilled over from academic circles into the public sphere, 
from time to time, what was the purpose of this Aliyah? Why did Rabbi Nachman Mendel of the Teps come to Eretz Yisrael? Why did the Talmud Hagain come to Eretz Yisrael? What was the purpose? Why did they want to do it? And there's and and, and it's a big question. Was it spiritual yearnings? Was it to uh, settle the land of Eretz Yisrael? Was it to keep the mitzvahs in Eretz Yisrael? Was it just a spiritual, mystical learning to study Taira and Kedusha and Taira, Avira Eretz Yisrael, Taira Eretz Yisrael? Could be many, many reasons. And what seemed to arise as a very dominant reason was Messianic. And uh, one of the big promoters of this reason was is a famous researcher named Dr. Aryeh Morgenstern, wrote several books on the topic. And uh, really the question goes back even further, um, is, is uh, in the post-Shabzai Tzvi era, after Shabzai Tzvi is proven to be a false Mashiach, and he dashes the hopes, everyone had high hopes for Shabzai Tzvi, and everyone believed in Shabzai Tzvi that he would be the Mashiach. And when it turns out that he's not Mashiach, because Mashiach, is not really supposed to convert to Islam, which is what Shabzai Tzvi did. So now, what happens amongst the Jewish people? Do they fall from the high belief in Mashiach that they had till Shabzai Tzvi? And now the, there's a kind of like a down, and the, the, in, in, in the, the innate, the, the immediate belief that Mashiach is just around the corner is somewhat cooled or lessened amongst the masses? Is that the result of Shabzai Tzvi? That would seem to be a natural result. And yet others say, no, just the opposite. Because the hopes were fanned for Mashiach to come, so now that Shabzai Tzvi has proven not to be Mashiach, now people are looking for other ways to bring Mashiach. And therefore, to come and settle Eretz Yisrael as a way to hasten the Geula, as a way to bring the Geula, and now we're going to come back to Eretz Yisrael and bring Jews and live as a Torah life and keep the mitzvahs in Eretz Yisrael. That's going to bring Mashiach. And it was Messianic yearnings that brought them to Eretz Yisrael. So that seems to be a big dispute. And interestingly enough, recently, recently as in just a couple of months ago, a very great researcher named Professor Manuel Etkis put out a new book in Hebrew called uh, I'll say the title, roughly translated from the Hebrew into English, The Messianic uh, um, Zionism of the, the Vilna Gain and his Talmidim, the, the uh, invention of a myth. In other words, he's here in this book to disprove that myth. And essentially the whole book is to disprove the idea that the Talmidim of the Vilna Gain, their, their aliyah had anything to do with Messianism, and it had nothing to do with, with bringing the Geula or Mashiach. It was for other reasons that they came, and he debunks the whole myth. He proves that a book that was written on the topic ostensibly by one of the Talmidim of the Vilna Gain is actually a forgery, and uh, because the book came out so recently, I myself have not yet gone through the whole book, but uh, I hope to go through it soon, and it seems to be a very interesting how he's going to disprove this whole idea that had anything to do with uh, Messianism. And they have the same question about the Aliyah of the, of the, Baal, the Talmud of Baal Shem Tev, whether it was Messianic, whether it was to bring the Geula or not. And that's a big question. But the fact of the matter is, is that they came and they settled the land. And how does that settlement look like? And what kind of develops is what's called and what com- comes to be called the Yishuv Hayashon, the old Yishuv. And the old Yishuv is defined by these people who, it was somewhat of a continuous aliyah, meaning there was individuals who continued to come throughout the 19th and early 20th centuries who joined the Yishuv Hayashan. And they came from Lithuania, they came from Poland, they came from the Ukraine, and they even came from Hungary at some point. So so they they form the core of what's called the old Yishuv, the Yishuv Hayashan, who lives in Yerushalayim, in Tveria and Sfas and Hebron, mainly in those four cities. They were called the Four Holy Cities. And they have a, a growing, slow, small, and, and slowly growing community. They're extremely poor. And the way they're supported is not by any sort of economy, because there is no economy to speak of at this time in this backwater colony of the Ottoman Empire. 
So they're supported by what comes to be known as the Chalukah system. And every community back in Europe, they create a support system to finance the Jews living in Eretz Yisrael. They, they, they believe in supporting the community in Eretz Yisrael. And that's how this relationship between the European exile and the small Jewish community in, ex, ex, Jewish community in Eretz Yisrael becomes solidified by this support system. <clears throat> what later happens is that people come and they, the later aliyahs, starting with the first aliyah, what's known in history is the first aliyah that starts in the 1880s, and they start building the new settlements in all parts of Eretz Yisrael, which we'll get to soon, um, which expands the Yishuv, and, and, and they build these new farming settlements and, and, uh, and other new places to live. And later, obviously, once political Zionism becomes comes onto the scene, then there's the second Aliyah, the third Aliyah following World War I, and of course the fourth and fifth in the interwar period. So those Aliyahs are known as the Yishuv HaChadosh, HaChadash, 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 depends how you say it, the new Yishuv, in any, in any event, it's the new Yishuv. And the question arises at this point is that what is the difference between the old Yishuv and the new Yishuv? And many over time have tried to make a very clear and fine distinction what is classified as the old Yishuv and what is classified as the new Yishuv. And one one classification which is some is inaccurate is where they lived. If they live in Yerushalayim, they're the old Yishuv. If they live in Rosh Pina or Petach Tikva or Rishon Litzion or Zichron Yaakov, one of the new Yishuvim of the uh, first Aliyah, then they're the new Yishuv. That can't be the classification because there were people who clearly belonged to the new Yishuv who lived in Yerushalayim, who moved to Yerushalayim, and vice versa. So then they came up with a new distinction that uh, depends when you came. If you came before a certain year, you're the old Yishuv, and if you came after a certain year, then you're part of the new Yishuv. That also is inaccurate because... Some people who were part of the old Yishuv came at a very late stage, and uh, vice versa. So another distinction would be how religious they are, religious, secular, but that also couldn't be a distinction because many religious and very religious Jews were very proudly part of the new Yishuv, which is something we'll discuss. They were very supportive of the new Yishuv and settled in these new settlements. And eventually what came to be the accepted distinction between the new Yishuv and the old one is how they decided to support themselves. If they're supported by the Chalukah system, in other words, they're not going to be self-sufficient, they're still going to live off the generosity of their brothers back home in Europe, then they're part of the old Yishuv. And what classifies someone as the new Yishuv, which made sense, was that they came to Eretz Yisrael to be self-sufficient. And they were going to set up farming settlements, eventually industry, they built cities, they were looking to be self-supportive. In fact, there were people from the old Yishuv who went out and became part of the new one. And actually, Petach Tikva, which is one of the first settlements ever made in 1878, was built by Jews, very religious Jews from the old Yishuv. Rabbi Yael Moshe Solomon, Rabbi Kiv Yisuf Schlesinger, Rabbi Solomon was from Lita, and Rabbi Yisuf Schlesinger was from Hungary. And the two of them from the old Yishuv in Yerushalayim, they went out and bought land, and started the farming settlement of Petach Tikva. It's hard to believe that Petach Tikva was once upon a time a farming settlement. It's a very uh, busy city today, but it once was. And it's also hard to believe that two Yerushalmi, very religious Jews, were the ones who founded it, and the religious community in Petach Tikva still keeps certain customs of Yerushalayim till this very day, because it was founded by members of the old Yishuv in Yerushalayim. And part of the reason was was they wanted to be self-sufficient. This actually reminds me of a story. When we were uh, a group going through the course at Yad Vashem, becoming licensed tour guides at Yad Vashem several years ago, so part of the training that we received was that since Yad Vashem is neighbors with Har Herzl, which is a military cemetery of the State of Israel, and a lot of the the um, leaders, prime ministers, and, and the like of the state of Israel are buried there. It's a very proud, Herzl himself, Jabotinsky, they're buried there in Har Herzl since they're neighbors with Yad Vashem. So Yad Vashem tour guides have to be 
uh, have to be able to guide it. Har Herzl also, so we received some training to guide on Har Herzl, since it sometimes is part of the tour. So there were, there's a very interesting uh, monument, memorial on Har Herzl for the ones killed by terror attacks. It's a very moving monument and uh, has the names of the people and little plaques of anyone who was killed in the history of the state and the pre-state era, killed by terrorist attacks. And also the vastness is also quite sad and tragic, how many are there. And the, the one who's teaching us and training us how to guide this site is explaining that when they set up this site, they had a question about what year they should start from. They're commemorating people who were killed in terrorist attacks. And the shaila was what year to start it from. When do we begin? Do we begin from the state? There were plenty of people who were killed in terrorist attacks also before the state was founded. So then the question is, when do you start it from? Do you start from the beginning of political Zionism? So anyone who was killed by terrorist attacks before political Zionism is not counted as a victim of terror? They didn't know what to do. So finally they settled on the year 1860. And we said, why 1860? What's, uh, what happened then? So 1860 was the first time that the Jews in the old Yishuv in Yerushalayim, they started to build a settlement outside of the walls. They built a settlement called Mishkenot Sha'ananim, and it was funded by Moses Montefiore, who is a story in itself about all the funding that he did for the Jewish settlement in Eretz Yisrael, and how, how connected he was, and how many times he visited, and what he built here, and literally it's an amazing story. Him and, of course, Rothschild, who came a bit later, Aaron Edmund de Rothschild. Um, between the two of them, the major uh, financiers of Jewish settlement in the Holy Land. But uh, the year 1860 is when they broke out of the old city walls. The entire city of Yerushalayim, the Jewish settlement in Yerushalayim was the old city. And here they broke out of the old city walls and they're starting to settle the land. And that's the beginning of real Jewish settlement of the land. And that's why we begin from 1860 counting who's killed by terrorist attacks. So a colleague of mine, you know, a completely secular guy, as most people in Yad Vashem are, and he, quite academic, you know, objective and let's stay, stick to the facts type of guy, he raises his hand as, she, as the presenter is, is explaining why they chose the year 1860, and he says, it's hard for me to understand why you consider several members of the old Yishuv, who had nothing to do with political Zionism, who were presumably, when the time would come many years later, would, would be the type that would be opposed to political Zionism. And they ha- are not, not, not building houses outside of the old city because of nationalistic aspirations. This is not Zionism. This is not nationalism. This is a housing crisis in the old city. There's no room to live. People are living on top of each other. There's absolutely no room Rent is sky high. This is a simple housing crisis, and they're solving it by buying a plot of land outside the walls and building homes there. Why would you consider that the beginning of nationalism, the beginning of settling the land? That was his question, which is a legitimate question. And um, the presenter didn't really have a great answer. He started fumfitting and moving on to the next stop. So I volunteered an answer, and I said... It seems that Jewish nationalism in Eretz Yisrael is born out of a housing crisis. And 150 years later, not much has changed. That still seems to be the defining feature of Jewish nationalism in Eretz Yisrael today, is that there's high prices of housing, and in many places, Tel Aviv and Yerushalayim and other places, there's a housing crisis. And it was a, um, I thought, a pretty good attempt at humor, and the presenter did not appreciate it at all although many of the us in the group uh, very much uh, appreciated it. And uh, that, that might be uh, a, an inkling as to the reality of the settling the land in Eretz Yisrael. So that's the Yish, old Yishuv and the upcoming new Yishuv. So the next stage that we have to talk about is what's called the Mavasrei Tzion. The Mavasrei Tzion or proto-Zionism, we could call it in English, is people who spoke and wrote and were activists about resettling Eretz Yisrael. They lived in the, there were different voices amongst the Jewish people with a wide geographical spread 
Um, there are those who even include people in America at the time of having these types of ideas and views and espousing them publicly, but for sure all across Europe. The rise of nationalism in Europe is definitely an influence following the French Revolution. So nationalism as an idea and as an ideal amongst nations definitely is spreading. There is nationalist reawakening amongst the Jewish people. They're looking to redefine themselves in many ways. There's a lot of movement. There's a lot of change. They're grappling with the challenges of modernity in many different ways. Excuse me, and rising nationalism is definitely an idea on the horizon. So you have different thinkers and writers and speakers and rabbis who speak about the Jews as a nation should resettle Eretz Yisrael, one of the first of those. And it's interesting how the many, a few, several of the first ones who did were actually rabbis themselves this is before any of the opposition starts, right? Um, in, in one of the first ones was actually down in the Balkans, a Sephardi rabbi, um, <coughs> excuse me, of Yehuda Al-Kelai, or Al-Kelai, um, very, very uh, big Talmud Chacham, a Rav, and living down in, in southern Europe. And he speaks publicly about it, and he was quite an activist about it. And he's one of the first people to write and speak and be actively involved in the idea that Jews should settle the land, and, and not just settle the land, but come together as a nation, which is the first time that someone's speaking in that language. Um, even the groups of the Talmudi HaGroh and Talmudi Baal Shem Tev, they never espoused the view that said the Jews should to come together as a nation, and a defining uh, identity of them as a nation is that they should resettle the land of Israel. They, they saw themselves as an elite group who, for whatever reason, wanted to go and live in a very holy atmosphere of Eretz Yisrael, a Bikdushu Vataira, and to, to be able to be there. And here, Rabbi Yehuda Alkali and later others, Ritzirish Kalisher, is one of the famous ones, who's a Polish Rav, um, who, who, who say we should come and we should try to settle there in mass, we should build settlements, we should farm the land, and we should resettle it with the Jewish people. Rabbi Yehuda Alkali writes about it. And in fact, um, he had a big influence on others. Um, there were many others involved in this early, I wouldn't even call it a movement, but somewhat of a proto-Zionism. It's a talk. It becomes, it becomes a topic. Um, one of the famous ones, like I said, was Ertzvihersh Kalischer. He's a Polish Rav, um, Rav of Turan in Poland. He's a Talmud of both the Nesivis, Yaakov Leiberboim, and Rabbi Kiva Eger, stayed very close with his Rabbi Rabbi Kiva Eger, and he travels the length and breadth of Europe at the time to convince people to get involved. He's the one who gets the Alliance, the French um, organization. In Hebrew is known as Kol Yisrael Haverim, one of the first, maybe possibly even the first Jewish organization that, that was uh, looked at the Jewish people as one whole, and they're out there to help the Jewish people. Of course, not everyone agreed with their methods of help, and very often their uh, help in building vocational schools that had secular studies were opposed by conservative elements within the Jewish world, both in Eastern Europe and North Africa and in Israel. But their intention was to look at, their original intent in creating the organization was to look at the unity of the Jewish people and to try to help them in whatever way they can. So he tries to, um, lobby them for their help in funding settlement in the land. Rabbi Kalisher eventually gets Rothschild involved, and uh, that becomes a very long relationship that the Rothschilds, especially Baron Edmund Day Rothschild, has with settling the land, a tremendous amount of funding and building that comes from Rothschild himself and the family. And he's one of the major movers in the early ideas of the Mavastritzian, of the proto-Zionism. Um, and in that context, we see the very first opposition from rabbis to the ideas, because Rutherish Kalisher is going everywhere trying to convince people of this idea. And uh, you know, he dies in 1874. Rabbi Yudalkala dies in 1878, right around the same time. And this, you know, it's, also you think about it, it's 1870s. This is they die. These two people well before, 20 years before political Zionism uh, exists. So they're really 
in an early stage. And in one of his travels, Reb Tzirish Kalasha tries to solicit the support of Reb Shamshin Rafal Hirsch, who was one of the most influential Rabbanim of his day, the Rav of Frankfurt, one of the greatest rabbis in Germany, one of the G'dayli Ador, prolific writer and speaker. He's someone with a tremendous influence, and he tries to solicit him to support the cause. And Reb Shamshin Rafal Hirsch opposes him. And he writes, the, he, wrote, he wrote him a letter to, uh, to another early opponent, um, not exactly a Rav, but he claimed to represent the Rav. And one of the great ironies was that Yaakov Lifshitz, who was the famous secretary of Rabbi Yitzchak Specter, was, was also an opponent of Rabbi Yitzchak At this point later, he was an opponent of the Chayvavet Siyan movement, which we'll get to shortly. And he later, he had a long life, Yaakov Lifshitz, and a long career, a public career, and he later is opponent of political Zionism. He lives long enough to see that also. And uh, it's an irony because a lot of fingers point in the direction, a lot of evidence points in the direction that Rabbi Yitzchel who he ostensibly was representing, was a supporter of the Chayvavet Siyan. And Rabbi Yitzchel did look positively at Jewish immigration to Eretz Yisrael, and to the reawakening to Jewish settlement in Eretz Yisrael, and the early settlements that Rothschild and the Chayvavet Sien had built in Eretz Yisrael. And therefore, is even uh, something that I think Rabbi Fishman Maimon wrote, that that, uh, that since the office of Rabbi Zalchanan was controlled by Yaakov Lifshitz, so we never got the accurate uh, view of what Rabbi Zalchanan had in his support of the Chayvavet Sien. And that remains up for dispute and uh and then is a dispute what it, what how 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 supportive was, was Rabbi Khanan of the early Chayvavet scene movement and of course we'll never know what he held about political Zionism because he dies in 1896 before political Zionism becomes a major force to be reckoned with so we're looking at really three different stages at this point there's the Mavasrit scene the proto-Zionism where the early opposition begins People like Yaakov Lifshitz, or Shamshin, or Fal Hirsch, there are others. There's the Chayvavet Siyan, which follows very closely on its heels, where there's many big rabbis involved in that as well. Shmuel Meilover was the famous Rav, who was in the, one of the leaders of the Chibas Siyan, or Chayvavet Siyan, had several different names, and there were several different subgroupings of it, uh, movement. Shmuel Meilover learned in Valozhin. And he was later the Rav in Suvalk and Radom, later in Bialystok, one of the largest cities in Poland, and had large support of religious and secular uh, supporters in Eastern Europe, the Chayvavet Sien movement, and, um, and, um, and also opposition. Opposition uh, begins uh, to gather momentum at that point also. So I want to go to the roots of the opposition, or Shamshinafal Hirsch, writes a letter to uh, Yaakov Lifshitz and says that Rav Tzirish came to try to convince me to support the, the, the this movement of settlement, and I opposed him. I, I, I'm, I'm against it. I'm against the nationalism part of it. I don't believe that this is the correct thing for the Jewish people. And he and he writes a very powerful, a very, uh, um, very strong-worded sentence there in this letter, he writes, what Reb Tzirish thinks is a great mitzvah, I believe to be no small Avera. And he does not explain in this letter what the Avera is, but in other writings of his, ironically, earlier writings of his, in other words, his, he did not formulate his opinion based on a reaction to what Reb Tzirish told him, but rather it had been a previously formulated opinion already in the writings of Reb Shamshin Hirsch earlier on in his career, it appears Beremez only hinted at in the 19 letters, and he elaborates on it a drop more in Choyrev, his, his seminal work. His, his, almost, I don't know if his magnum opus, his Pirish on Chumash, might have been more of an uh, essential work, but he wrote an enormous amount. He was a prolific writer, and he wrote about it in other places as well, in his collected writings, and he's the first one, to the best of my knowledge, there might be others, who invokes the idea of the Shalei Shvuis. He brings up the idea 
that, um, that, that we don't leave the exile, we don't force the end of the exile, we don't mass migrate from the exile to Eretz Yisrael to recreate a state. And he believes in his whole belief system of how Golis and Geula work, and that we had a chance of serving Hashem as a nation state. This is how he describes it. And we blew it. It didn't work. So we get, we get track two to bring the Geula. And track two is the Golis way. And if we mess up track two by trying to make a nation state in Golis, then we'll never get out of Golis because the only way for us to achieve the Geula is to go on this second track, which is called Golis and living amongst the nations. And it's, he goes on for quite a bit of explanation to explain how Golis works and how we do this Tikkun and how we achieve Geula. <coughs> but he's the first, one of the first at least, to invoke the idea that we're violating the three Shavuos, the Shavua to, to not rebel against the nations of the world and also to not mass migrate and force our way into Eretz Yisrael as a people. And that was his opinion. And he held strongly of it. And um, the question that people always ask is, well, what would he have held had he lived long enough to see political Zionism? Rav Shamshin Falhirsh did not live long enough to see political Zionism. He dies in 1888, and political Zionism uh, only exists about 10 years later. And uh, what's dangerous about trying to imagine what different rabbis, Rav Tzikl Khan Inspector and the Nitziv, who dies in 1892, all these people had support or opposition to the earlier stages, to the Mavasreitzian or to the Choyvevetzian movement. And, and what would there have been, when then we tried to speculate, what would have been their support of political Zionism, of the state of Israel, had they even lived another 50 years and seen the actual actualization of the creation of a state of Israel, the reality of a, a state? Would they have still supported it? Would they have switched opposition? And of course, on the other side, would he have persisted in his opposition had he seen political Zionism or seen the reality of the state? Or would he have switched to support or passivity, ambivalence? What would have been their position? And then there's an enormous amount of writing trying to speculate what they would have held. And that's a very dangerous area for a historian to go to. It's definitely safe for philosophers or people who are into theology or any other type of uh, fun science that allows you to speculate. But for a historian, it's, 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 it's just dangerous territory because anything speculative in history is, is, is just that. It's, it's speculative and there's no way for, for us to really know. And we're limited by the time period that they lived in. In other words, if he lived only in the time of the Mavastritzian, of the early Chayvevetzian movement, and he didn't see political Zionism, so then it's hard for us to know. It's a similar thing to, to what, uh, almost every tour that I give in Yad Vashem. People ask me, what would have happened had the Allies agreed to bomb Auschwitz? And the answer is, and unfortunately I have to admit it each time, and I always wish the groups wouldn't ask it, so I wouldn't have to admit that I don't know something each time, because it's so difficult to admit that I don't know. But the answer is that I have no idea. You know, I have no idea because the Allies did not bomb Auschwitz. And therefore, it's hard to know what would have happened if they would have bombed it, if they would have attempted to bomb it. And I'm tempted to give all types of answers that nothing would have happened because they would not have succeeded in pinpointing accuracy of bombing it. And even if they would have, then not wouldn't have really stopped the killings at that point. And even, even, even... But I don't even go into that whole lecture because it's speculative. Because the reality was is that they did not bomb them. And therefore, it's hard to know what would have happened had the scenario been differently. And the same thing is over here. We have to recognize that certain rabbis lived at an earlier time period. And therefore, it's hard to know what their opposition or support of the movement would have been in a later period of time when it was political Zionism, when it was when it was secular, or the opposite, when there's a reality of the state and then you have to deal with the living reality on the ground and not something theoretical far off into the future. And uh, therefore we have to be careful about quoting rabbis in support or in opposition of Zionism and applying them to a different time period 
when which they had never addressed in the first place. So the Chayvavet Sinayin is born out of the Mevastrit Sinayin. Like I mentioned, Rishmul Meilover becomes one of the leaders. He is a respected Talmud Chacham of Alajanar. And even though the Chayvavet Sinayin has a lot of secular support, the official head of the Chayvavet, Chibas Sinayin, it's a different different uh, times, it's different, called different things, uh, is Leon Pinsker, who's not the biggest, well, he's not the biggest uh, uh, rabbi for sure, not even the most religious Jew, and he's the head of the movement, but um, it still garners um, definitely religious support and also rabbinical support by people like Rabbi Shmuel Meilover. The, the first the major conference of the Chibastien is in Katowice. Let me ask What's the Katowice Conference? Then most people um, would immediately point to the 1912 founding of Agudis Yisrael in Katowice. Well, almost 30 years earlier, 28 years earlier, in 1884, was the uh, Chibas Conference in Katowice, where Shmuel Meilover attended as a senior rabbi. Um, he was quite, he was already older. He, he only died in 1898. But he was already an older man, excuse me. And he um, saw the movement from above. And that's when the first settlement starts to come to Israel. It gains momentum. Um, and, um, and, the, and the Rothschild colonies start, uh, start to be built. Rishon Lezion, Zechren Yaakov, Ekron, Rosh Pina. Uh, Rosh Hashanah himself visits Eretz Israel, And he grapples with the, he's the first one to grapple with the question... Now we have farming settlements in Eretz Yisrael. How are they going to go ahead and keep Shemitah? And, um, and that becomes a major issue. How are we going to keep Shemitah? And maybe they're going to receive financial ruin. And Rothschild isn't that interested that the farmers shouldn't work for a whole year and he's going to stop his funding. And Rabbi Shmuel Meilover, because of the situation at the time, it's very risky and it's almost the collapse of the whole new Yishuv in Eretz Yisrael, and he comes up with the Heter Mechira, and he's the first one to come up with the, the, in the practical sense, it could be people came up with it in theory earlier, to use it in a practical sense, but he doesn't want to do it himself, he's only going to do it if the two great Gedaili Poiskim in Poland and Lithuania support it, Rabbi Yeshua of Kutna, the Rav of Kutna, and Rabbi Tzikolchan inspected the Kovner Rav. And they both do support it. He's able to convince them to support it, at least on a one-time basis for that Shemitah. Um, and that saves the farming settlement. By the way, the farmers, uh, they grew a vineyard. And this was the first wine produced by Jewish farmers, as far as anyone knew, as far as anyone was able to tell, this was the first wine produced by Jewish farmers since shortly after the Churban Habayis. And this is very emotional. And they sent one of the first bottles of wine made in Rishon Lezion, a settlement, first, one of the first Rothschild colonies. They send it back to Lita, to the Nitziv of Alajan, the Rashiv of Alajan, because he was a supporter of the Chayvavet Sinayin movement. In, in Valajan, there was actually a secret Chayvavet uh, Sinayin. First it was called Neistziyayna, and then it was called something else. Forgot the name. It went through several phases. It was secret. So today, people think it was secret because they didn't want the Hanhala of the yeshiva to find out about them. The reason it was secret is because they didn't want the czar to find out about him, the czarist spies and the czarist police, because it was illegal to have these societies, they were considered revolutionary and anti-czar in, inside uh, the Russian Empire, and they had to keep it secret from them. And the Nitziv was a secret supporter of this, of them. many of the Talmidim of Elijah, who became supporters of the Chayv of and the later of the Mizrahi, of, of, of religious Zionism, all learned in Valajan by the Nitziv, and they blamed it on him, Rav Kook, Rav Yitzhak of Rhinus, and others, even Rav Shmuel Meilover himself, and, um, and, they, and they, they sent the bottle of wine to the Nitziv. The Nitziv, when he received this first bottle of wine, made by Jewish farmers, keeping the mitzvah satulis ba'aretz, separating truma and maiser, and, and, and all the other mitzvahs that are relevant to Yisrael, and he was so filled with joy that he put on his Shabbos clothing to be able to drink the, this first bottle of wine. That was his, he said it's a cause for Yantif. But at the same time, 
that uh, that it's a yantif, even Reb Shmuel is now having his hesitations. Once Achad Ha'am, Usher Ginsberg, was a famous writer and thinker, early Zionist uh, philosopher almost, and he he becomes the head of the Chayvav and he changes its direction a bit. He he's. Rav Shmuel has his hesitations about what Achad Ha'am wants to do, which is something I'll elaborate on in the next uh, um, next episode of this series about the development of Chavivetzion into a real nationalistic movement and what it means as a nationalistic movement. Rav Shmuel saw it as messianic, like Rav Tzvirish Kalisher. This is a way to bring the Geula. Um, the the Shmuel met Herzl. He lived long enough to see the beginning of political Zionism, and he supported Herzl. And he felt that whatever the means are, we need to bring the Geula, and we need to bring Mashiach, and end this Galus already, and we're going to do it by settling the land of Israel. And it's at this point that the opposition gains traction. And one of the earliest opponents, and one of the most uh, sharp opponents of Zionism at this point, of the early Zionism, of the Chayv Ve'etzian, becomes the Rashab of Chabad, the fifth Rabbi of Chabad, Rabbi Sholem Ber. He's one of the first ones to publicly go against the Chayv Ve'etzian and the early political Zionism. He, 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 he uh, presides over both time periods, and he organizes signatures of Rabbanim, Machoz, Kol Koireiz, and even possibly he was behind the first Kuntris, the first pamphlet that was written as an opposition to Zionism. Yaakov Lifshitz was also involved in that. And um, Chaim Brisker got involved pretty early on. And the anti-position uh, um, of, of anti-Zionism starts to solidify its position. And it's a anti, the opponents had opposition on several different levels. They have an opposition at the theological level. They mention ideas such as the Shalish voice that we already mentioned earlier from Rav Shamshin Hirsch, and later becomes famous because of the Satmarov and others much, much, much later. And this is already being talked about now. The Rashab of Chabad mentions it explicitly. It's also on a practical level. Um, they feel that it's wrong because the Chayv especially after Achad Ha'am, takes charge of the movement, takes a very secular turn. They feel that the Jewish people needs to be fixed, and nationalism needs to become strong, and the Jewish culture needs to be developed, and we need to leave behind a lot of things we took on as bad baggage from the exile, including a lot of the traditional Jewish life that Jews lived in the Russian Empire, and therefore the opposition gains Ground. It's interesting that there's a, one other factor that comes into play. After 1881 and the pogroms in Russia, so there's a massive immigration. The Great Emigration begins, and it's mainly to the United States. So, word starts to come back to Europe that the United States isn't such a golden medina as far as spirituality is concerned. And there's not a lot of rabbis, and the communities aren't strong, and people are starting not to keep Shabbos. And maybe, since people have to leave Russia, since emigration seems to be inevitable, and there's, it's just in, in mass, it's, 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 uh, everyone's leaving, there's millions of people leaving eventually. So the rabbis, many rabbis, maybe they, they say, hey, maybe Eretz Yisrael is a solution. In other words, Eretz Yisrael becomes a solution to solve the immigration problem. And perhaps this is a way to salvage their religion. This is a way to keep their spirituality. It's also a letter of Reb Tzaddik HaKoyen, who lives just around this time. And he writes to someone who had moved to England, which is similar to the immigration to America, moved to London. And he says, no, maybe you should move instead to Eretz Yisrael. Why don't you move? This is, letter is published in the introduction to, to sometimes in the Tzidka Satzadik. And it's seen as a as a, a way out to maybe to move, it becomes an, should become, or possibly could become, at least on a minor scale, as an, an alternative option of immigration. So next episode will, will of, this, of this series, of course, will, I'll, I'll discuss further the development of the Chavivet Zion and the early political Zionism 
and of course how the opposition from certain rabbinical circles gains ground. How does the Rashab organize? The fifth Rebbe of Chabad doesn't just oppose it himself, he organizes the opposition, and that's something we also want to talk about next time, and um, for the next episode, for the third part of the series. So we'll end off uh, over here. And this was Yehudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. Um, of course, we'll add, as we do from time to time, the Geb's Words segment. There's, of course, we're learning English as we go along. It's not just studying history, but the great listeners that we have are take, have taken it upon themselves to teach me a bit of English. And in an earlier episode, I said the word uh, incorrectly. I said the word kavit, and it's really kaviat. And um, I'm ashamed that I used that word wrong. And of course, there's another word that I used recently in an episode. I said the word poignant, not realizing that the G there does not want to be noticed and is really silent, and it's poignant. So there's two corrections there. So you can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites and iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Don't miss an episode. Give a good rating. Share with your friends and family. You could follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites. And later this week, aside from this ongoing series, we have our regular uh, episodes that keep on coming out. We have a really, really good one coming up this week. Stay tuned. It's going to be really exciting. In honor of the summer vacation, we're going to have something really good ahead of us. So stay tuned and don't run away too far from Jewish History Soundbites, and I hope you enjoy it.